So 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we will be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. Okay, what's this for again? Yeah, we're, we're not where we're supposed to be. Things are uncomfortable. I usually don't wear these, but you're going to see these, right? We're, we're out of sorts. It's who Peter is writing to. He's writing to a group of people who are not where they belong. They have been kicked out of wherever they are. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, my thought is um, people in Rome who were either kicked out due to religious reasons or colonial expansion reasons and they have found themselves scattered throughout Asia Minor, um, and they are not at home. And so the purpose of 1 Peter is to write to them and, and tell them, because you're uncomfortable, because this isn't where you belong, because you're even being persecuted for your faith, here's how you're supposed to live. Um, and so a question this morning, what is your first response to your own troubled heart? When you're annoyed, maybe over minor things like it snowed on this end of the county and didn't snow on my end of the county, or maybe you're annoyed because it did snow on your end of the county and didn't snow on someone else's, right? Either you got snow or you didn't. We can be annoyed by the the littlest things or much bigger issues, heartache or disease, death, just the, the corruption of life. What is, your, what is your default response? Where do you go? What's the first thoughts that run through your head? We need to think about that a little. That needs to, we need to, how do I respond when, when I'm uncomfortable with life, when I don't like where I am? But then maybe just as important, how do we respond to other people when they're in that situation? What do we say? What advice do we give them? How do we, how do we come alongside them in compassion and empathy and concern? You know, Proverbs says you don't sing songs to a troubled heart. That's like taking someone's coat off in winter, right? We know what that would be like. You walk out this morning with no coat on. It's, it's sharp. It's, it's bitter. It's biting. And so we don't, we don't make fun of, we don't sing songs to a troubled heart, but what do we do? What's our response? If you were tasked with writing this letter to these people that have been kicked out of their home and are uncomfortable and are not where they want to be and are being persecuted for their faith, how do you start? What's the first thing that you say to them? I thought about that a lot this week. If it were up to me, what would I say first and I'd go back and, and look at other stuff that I've written. Sometimes I, I write letters and I'll type them and I went back and looked at letters that I've written to people. How do I start? What do I say? I'm, I'm sorry that it's been a rough time. I wish I could make things different. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but what's interesting is that's not how Peter starts. He begins by taking their mind off themselves and fixing it on something else that's far better. He begins by taking their minds off themselves and fixing it on something that's far better. From the very beginning, he he fixes their mind on God, 
Now remember, he's just said that God is the one that not only chose them, but the very next word, literally, Peter, to the chosen ones who don't fit in anywhere. Not only are they chosen to be a part of God's family, but it seems, from the language that Peter uses, that they're chosen to be where they are, in the situation where they are, and immediately Peter fixes their eyes and their mind on this one, the one who's put them where they are. I don't know if that's comforting or not. (laughs) So you want me to think about this one who has put me where I am? And I, I think Peter's response is, yes, I do. But it's not just I want you to think about whether you're mad at him or not. He gives them something to think about. He fixes their gaze on God and he, he tells them why. So we begin in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word and I thank You for what is in it. I pray that You would use it to strengthen our faith this morning. I pray that You'd open not only our ears that we would hear well, but open our minds that we would understand. And ultimately that You would change our wills, that we would be Your children. And that we would honor You in the things we say and do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He begins, Blessed be... Remember, this is the one who chose them to be where they are, and he says, Blessed be this one. In other words, we should praise Him. Our minds should be fixed upon Him. Our thoughts are we should bless God, we should praise Him. When I read... The, the New Testament especially, I'm very tempted, often kind of tempted to rush by all this lofty language and get to the part where, okay, just tell me what to do. <laughs> What's my response? Okay, yeah, I get that. We praise God. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do I do? Tell me, Peter, what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to live? But I think we, we rush over those parts to our detriment because as we've talked before, it's it's, it's getting the mind to change. As Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By doing the right things all the time? No, but by, by the renewing of our mind. Right? If this doesn't change, then this doesn't change, and this doesn't change. And so Peter necessarily begins in the right place. Are you fixing your mind on God? Are you praising the one who has put you where you are? Are you blessing His name? The first advice He gives them is not actions, it's an attitude. It's not the words they speak, it's the thoughts that they think. When I'm up against persecution, when I'm up against feeling sorry for myself because I really wish I was back home, I really wish I was somewhere else, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why. 
He gives us a reason that's directly related to their situation. He says, He's caused us to be born again. See, they were born into sin. They were born into this world that's full of corruption. They were born into a world where selfishness reigns, where decay and corruption are a normal part of life. Things break down, relationships break down if we don't, if we don't try to keep them together. We're surrounded by death. They're born into this situation. There's nothing permanent. We can't grasp onto something and say, in this life, here's something that will last. Because nothing does. Right? Death seems to win. And then Peter tells them, We praise God, we bless God, we set our mind on Him because He has caused us to be born again. There's this second birth. There's this this other sphere of life that's different from the one that you know of sin and decay and corruption and death. This second birth gives us a new nature. It reminds us and it promises us a new kingdom. Selfishness gives way to service. Decay gives way to growth. Death gives way to life. Corruption gives way to purity and wholeness. See, Peter points them at the beginning to God because he wants them to think of a different reality than where they are living. He wants them to think, he wants them to understand that where you are is not all there is. There's something else. You have been born again to a, into a new kingdom. And that doesn't remove where we are now. It doesn't take away the pain. But as we begin to set our mind on God on a regular basis, it, it lessens the pull and the fear and the effects of the world. I think if we do it enough, I think if we actually practice that, Day in and day out, when life comes my way, I'm going to set my mind on God. Somehow, some way, we get to that point where we can begin to say like Paul, who faced persecution nonstop. People that he loved hated him. People that were his own treated him poorly. He was beaten. He was stoned. He suffered the, the natural effects of, of nature. He was caught in storms. He was shipwrecked. He had friends betray him. People that he trusted turned their back on him. He suffered, it appears, from disease and hardship. And he says, and I want to say... You're not serious, Paul. Surely you don't mean this, but I really think he does. He says, 
These light momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And you read through the descriptions of what he went through and you think that's not light. It doesn't seem momentary. Afflictions, yeah, I'd agree with that word. And I think it's because he understood this and he spent his time practicing and living day in and day out. When life happens, I'm going to set my mind on the one who can do something about my problems. And even if they're not fixed here, and for Paul, they weren't fixed. I'm not sure there was ever a time when he didn't undergo persecution in some form or fashion. When heartache and hardship and loneliness and despair weren't constant companions for him. But because he said, this is the way I want to live, I'm going to set my mind on things above, not on things that are upon the earth. As he wrote the Colossians, for, for, we, for I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ will appear, then we also will appear with Him in glory. He was just foolish enough to believe that and he practiced that. I want my life to be like that, but it doesn't just, I can't just sit and wait. It begins up here. When, when those things happen, where is my mind going to go? Am I going to begin to feel sorry for myself? Am I going to throw a pity party? Am I going to get angry? Am I going to get frustrated? Where do I go? And it begins up here. But there's, there's more. It's not just that He's caused us to be born again. He points us in a direction of, of where that goes. What does that include? And there's these list of graces that he talks about that are tied up in us being born again. He, he describes that with four prepositional phrases, two of which we'll come back to in a minute. But in the middle of verse 3, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Imagine if you ask those people, do you ever hope to get back to where you belonged? If they were part of the Roman establishment that forcibly moved them into a new place, my guess is most of them would say, no, not really. I, I think I'm stuck here. I, I don't know what kind of hope they have. And if, if you're waiting around here in this life for all of a sudden things to turn around and, and it'd be rosy and it'd be 72 and sunny every day, I don't, I don't mean to be a bearer of bad news, but I don't think it's going to happen. While we're here in this body and corruption and death and sin and selfishness, we will have friends and loved ones who will hurt us and betray us. Nature will come against us, whether that's just cold or wind or rain. Disease will be ever-present with us. Those things aren't going to go away. And so if, if, if we're hoping in this life for something to be just a whole lot better, um, I think our hope is misplaced. But because we are born again, he says we're born again to a living hope, a hope that's active, a hope that's alive, a hope that actually has confidence that something will change. And then he points us even further. 
the beginning of verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. In the New Testament, the idea of inheritance is tied up in our final salvation when we see Jesus face to face. When ultimately, death and corruption and sin and selfishness and decay really are done away with. And he describes that inheritance four different ways. He uses three words that, that give us a taste of what it means. First is, it's imperishable. It's a word that Paul uses several times to describe God. It's a word that means it's impervious to decay and corruption. You can't, you can't outlive it. In other words, it's not affected by death. Your inheritance, the promise of your final salvation, is not affected by death. It's undefiled. It's not mixed with anything. You don't have to pick up and look at the, the ingredients. See, no trans fats, no artificial flavors, no gluten. You don't have to worry about that stuff. It's, it's not mixed with anything. It's undefiled. It's not affected by impurities. It will not fade away. It doesn't lose its luster over time. We're not going to show up in heaven and go, Oh, I threw my bell bottoms away a long time ago. Or, or, or be in the wrong style. If we really understand, and if that's what we're longing for, we won't ever get tired of longing for it. And on that side, we won't ever get tired of living in it. It's not going to go out of style. It's not affected by time. Our inheritance, it's not affected by death. It's not affected by impurities. It's not affected by time. All those things on this earth that all of those things get to eventually doesn't get to our inheritance. He also describes it as reserved in heaven for you. You can't be late to it. Even if you're the last one there, your seat is saved. Unlike here, you don't have to come in and go, how are we going to sit? How are we going to fit? We've tried to make longer rows so that families can sit together. But even if people get your seats, right, our inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Someone's not going to come in and steal it. I don't have to worry about losing my ticket. Right? It's, it, it's like it's going to be at the will call window. I can show up and say, oh, let me see, your name is written in the book of life. Yep. Come in. And if that's not enough, verse 5, we, not, not just our inheritance is secure, not just that our inheritance is not affected by death or by time, it's not just that's reserved, but, but us, we, you and I, are protected by the power of God. God. 
as Paul writes, that same power that raised Christ from the dead. We're protected by that. This living hope, this inheritance that doesn't go away, this protection, all wonderful graces that God bestows upon us by causing us to be born again. And Peter says, praise Him for that. In the middle of however you feel, in the middle of whatever's going through your life, just keep that in mind. Praise Him for those things that are secure and eternal and that will be ours one day. But there's a problem. He's given us all these wonderful graces and yet one of those other prepositional phrases that, that modifies this, at that very beginning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And then he lists all these things that I, I think are grace, this stuff that, that we get that we don't deserve, and yet mercy is sort of the opposite that. It's, it's withholding what we do deserve. Does Peter not know the difference? <laughs> Why would he say according to his great mercy and then list a bunch of graces for us? Let me tell you a story. This little boy... Five or six years old. And he and his family went through the kind of the same routine every night. They'd, they'd eat dinner. And then they'd say, okay, go get ready for bed. Put your pajamas on, the ones with the, the feet, you know, and come padding back in the living room and brush your teeth, wash your face. And he'd come padding back in the living room. And then they would sit on the floor together and, and play a game and put together a puzzle. And that was the, the nightly routine. And he loved it. And one, one night during dinner, he, he became agitated over something rather silly, kind of like the way we usually do. We, we become agitated over silly things. And, and being five and not able to control himself very well, not like y'all adults, that agitation kind of turned to anger. And that anger kind of allowed him to, to lose self-control and, and kind of in a, a fit of anger, knocked his milk cup across the table. And I mean, milk went everywhere. On the table, into the floor... And sort of like us, there's this, this brief moment after we've sinned when kind of our vision clears and we go, that wasn't the right thing to do. I don't know at five or six if he understood all the ramifications, but he had in his, his mind, and he knew enough about growing up in this family that I've made a mess and it's going to take time for me to clean this up. And he begins kind of to, to play that out. And, and now what's getting blurry in his mind is, is the playing on the floor with his parents after dinner. And he's beginning to think, I think I've blown that. And his mom, very, very sweetly, says, Dear, you've, you've made a mess. Why don't you go get cleaned up? Go ahead and put your pajamas on. Get ready for bed and then come back. Tears in his face. And, and he knows that coming back, he's going to, be on the floor on the table with a rag and, and cleaning up. And so he pads off to the bathroom and, and he comes back and his mom and dad are on the floor. There's a game. And he looks at the table and it's clean. And he, he kind of doesn't understand, but, he, but he's thankful and there's this smile on his face 
because I get this grace. I get to play with my parents. And he didn't really see, he didn't really understand what happened. He missed what happened. He knew there was a mess and now the mess is gone. And now he gets to play. He didn't really understand that, but he's, he's thankful for grace. And you see, mercy is often the servant of the glory that is grace. Mercy is often the servant that is the glory of the grace that we receive. See, servants often do their task unnoticed, unappreciated. Sometimes we're even not aware that it happened. We just, we show up and things are the way they're supposed to be. And we don't know that someone behind the scenes did a lot of stuff for us. And we just get to experience the, the glory, the fun, the joy. And yet Peter reminds them very subtly that all these graces came from somewhere. And where they came for was according to God's great mercy. And we look and say, but where is it? I don't see it. And like servants, it's hiding in the corner. In fact, the end of verse 3, and He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that short little phrase, from the dead, that's where mercy hides. We get to experience grace. We get to experience this living hope. We get to experience this undefiled, wonderful inheritance. We get to experience the protection of the power of God. And what we missed, what we didn't have to experience, what we weren't a part of, was the death of Christ. Like the mom or dad or whoever it was that got on their hands and knees and cleaned up all the milk that the little boy didn't even experience, didn't even get to see. Jesus allows us to experience... The only way we can experience the wonderful grace that Peter talks about is because mercy was shown to us. God had compassion on us. And instead of us experiencing the cross, which is what we deserved, because the wages of sin is death, God sent His only Son to experience that on our behalf. He had mercy upon us. And that mercy served us in such a way that we get to experience the glory of God's grace on a regular basis. Things that Peter talks about here, but things like the fellowship of, of the family of believers in this body. Grace. I'm sure Wednesday night there'll be a wonderful time here. We did that in, on that end of the county on Friday night. We had a, it was just, it was Grace. Conversations, relationship, fellowship. It's grace. All made possible because of the death of Christ on the cross. Mercy. Mercy serves grace. So what do we do? Um, first, the same thing I think that Peter wanted those aliens and strangers to do. When life happens, where do we, where do we set our, our mind? Where do we go? It takes practice. 
It takes deciding when here, now, at this point, I really do, when, when I'm prone to whatever your emotional response to the hardships of life happens to be. They're all different. Whether it's anger or self-pity or uh, withdrawal, whatever that happens to be, I need to begin the process of setting my mind on something else. Reminding myself of the fact that I am born again, that there's something beyond this life. But second, I think even beyond that, how do I respond to other people who hurt me, who annoy me, who don't act out life the way I think they should act out life? Are we willing to be merciful to them? Do we so need justice that that clouds our ability to have compassion for other people and to be merciful? Do we want them to experience justice now or do we want them to experience the justice that was done on their behalf on the cross? And so as we relate to the world, people you know and people that you don't know, maybe people that you see on TV or hear on the radio, are your thoughts towards them merciful? Or I just want justice to happen. I just want to feel better if you get what's coming to you. Now, that doesn't mean we're, that we're anti-law. We think society should function in a certain way. But ultimately, what's our prayer? that they would just know earthly justice or that they would know the justice that happened on the cross on their behalf. As we walk out of these doors, we, have, we will get an opportunity to practice. Every one of us this week can almost guarantee you something will not go your way. And what is our response? My prayer, my hope is that it would be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and Your love for us, Your compassion that You showed to us on the cross. And may we delight in You this week.